Thanks, John, for that Bible reading. And thank you for that phenomenal plant game. I've just furthermore been, yeah, learnt how bad I am with my plants. I thought that the gardenia was a rose bush. I thought that the like steruthia was lavender. I'm just, I'm all over the place. So hopefully someone earned some points because I definitely wouldn't have. How's it going, guys? It's um, great to be here with you today and continue just diving in to this message uh, in Nehemiah, looking at this story from 2,400 years ago that just time and time again blows me away of how relevant it still is for us today as a church, as a people of God. Um, yeah, I was just sort of meditating on these uh, these two chapters this week. Um, and in particular, chapter 12, where they're dedicating the wall of Jerusalem. They're finally celebrating. You know, I kind of think of an Olympian when they win gold medal running around the track with their, their country's flag. They are celebrating that finally, after all of this hard work, after faithfully following God, they have completed the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Um, and it kind of got me thinking, why was it so important? Why, why was this such a momentous occasion in reality? I mean, I think of myself, for them, Jerusalem was their home uh, that they had been taken away from and they came back to rebuild. I, I grew up in Bankstown and there was a kebab shop um, nearby that everybody loved. And one night at like 3 a.m., it blew up and bricks flew across the road and smashed into the post office window across the other side. Um, but, you know, I didn't run back to Bankstown to build a kebab shop, you know, but this was so important to them to go back and rebuild their hometown. And why was this so important to them? What was Jerusalem to them? It wasn't just some hometown. It was so much more than that. It was the promised land. It was a promise that God had made to them all the way back in Exodus that they would come into a land in which God's presence would dwell. Jerusalem was for these people, for the Jews and for Nehemiah and Ezra. It was God's kingdom being rebuilt on earth. That's what they were really doing. They weren't just celebrating the rebuilding of their homes. They were celebrating the rebuilding of God's kingdom. And I think it's really interesting when we look at where we are as a church at the moment. In a lot of ways, the center is kind of our little community where we come together, where we're trying to build God's kingdom. And obviously we know that it's not about the building, it's about the people. But I was kind of thinking about back in 2 Chronicles, before this whole story happens, all of the um, people of Jerusalem are attacked by the Babylonians. Their city is destroyed and they are pulled out of the place that they've known of God's promised land. And they are scattered throughout the empire of Persia. And I was kind of thinking about this parallel for us as a community at the moment at the center, about how we are scattered. That not too unlike the Babylonians, coronavirus has come in and pulled us out of our place of worship, of our community that we come together to commune, to build God's kingdom, and it's scattered us. And how thankful can we be that we've got online services and we've got Zoom hangouts and we've got small groups and we've got care callers and all the other things that we do to make sure that we still have that community. That's really what we're trying to do right now, isn't it? It's almost like we're trying to, in a moment of uncertainty, of unprecedented panic and fear and anxiety, we're trying to rebuild something. We're trying to rebuild that sense of community. You know, right now it feels like we're walking up a mountain, doesn't it? 
It feels like we've been trekking up this mountain and suddenly the mountain has gotten so much steeper and the air is getting thinner. And this goal, this goal of, of building God's kingdom, of reaching out to the community in Dural seems so unattainable. I want to call this talk today, Reaching the Summit. Because that's what it kind of is like at the moment. We've got this unattainable goal that seems so far away that we need to push on for. And how do we do that? Well, let's step out of Nehemiah for a second and let me tell you a little story about a New Zealand beekeeper and a Nepali Sherpa back in 1950s. You guys probably know of him or most of you would or of them, Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay. They were the first two men ever in recorded history to reach the top of Mount Everest, the highest mountain on earth. It was an insurmountable goal that they had. They were the ninth British expedition. There'd already been eight British expeditions before them and a bunch of other expeditions from all other countries around the world that had attempted this, been trying for 12 years, all of these different expeditions, trying to reach this insurmountable goal, reaching the summit of Everest. And as we all know, on, uh, on, on May 29th at 11.30 a.m., they finally got there. But you know what? It wasn't without its challenges and it wasn't without a lot of hard work and dedication. And I want to today, as we're looking at Nehemiah, pull out three principles that applied both for Hillary and Norgay and also Nehemiah and Ezra. And I think are also going to really apply for us right now when we're trying to reach the summit, when we're trying to rebuild something, reclaim something, create God's kingdom on earth. You know, when I was looking at chapter 11 of Nehemiah, I'm not going to lie, I kind of felt like it was a bit of a stitch up because verses 1 to 36 are literally just a bunch of names. That's all that is. And I thought, well, what am I going to preach on chapter 11? I might as well just jump to chapter 12. And then God just hit me with a fistful of humility and said, that's the point. It can be so easy to oversee all of these hundreds of names in chapter 11, all of these people who were part of this rebuilding of Jerusalem. 5,000 people followed Ezra to rebuild Jerusalem. But how easy is it when we look at this story, this epic feat that they had accomplished? to just think of Ezra and Nehemiah? Or how easy is it when we think of these two men who accomplished a phenomenal feat reaching the top of Everest to just think of Hillary and Norgay? But the reality is they had a team of 400 people helping them achieve that. Through no small feat, they had people coming. It was a 100-kilometer trek, 29,000 feet that they had to climb. And they had a team, as I said, of 400 people bringing up supplies incrementally throughout their journey, meeting them where they were at, supporting them, bringing them oxygen, bringing them supplies, going out ahead of them and carving steps out for them, finding safe encampments for them to rest for the night. Tenzing Norgay in his autobiography writes, you do not climb a mountain like Everest, by trying to race ahead on your own or by competing with your comrades, you do it slowly and carefully by unselfish teamwork. It was only because of the work and sacrifice of all of them that we were now to have a chance at the top. The first principle I want to look at today is rely on each other. 
You know, God has created us in 1 Corinthians 12. It talks about the body of Christ. It's an image that most of us would be quite well versed in. But it's such an important one about every part of the body working together. In Genesis 2.18, in the very beginning, God creates Adam and he sees that there's something wrong. He says, God says, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Ephesians 4.16 reads, from him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. We see this kind of teamwork in Nehemiah 12.47. It reads, So in the days of Zerubbabel and Nehemiah, all Israel contributed the daily portions for the musicians and the gatekeepers. They also set aside the portion for the other Levites, and the Levites set aside the portion for the descendants of Aaron. It wasn't all Ezra and Nehemiah. It wasn't all Hillary and Norgay. It's not going to be all Brian and our new senior pastor. It's going to be a team effort for us to see God's kingdom come to Dural, to New South Wales, to Australia. 1 Corinthians 12, which I mentioned before, at verse 21, it says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. Each part of the body needs support from another. You know, you think... Building, rebuilding Jerusalem, Ezra and Nehemiah. You think getting up to the top of Ezra, Everest, Hillary and Norgay. You think the center, creating a kingdom, bringing God's kingdom to earth. Who do you think of? Because it's not just one, it's not just two people, it's our whole community. Rebuilding Jerusalem consisted of 5,000 men. Getting up to the top of Everest, 400, a team of 400 people to reach the summit. You know, there's a bit of a kind of well-known adage saying there's no I in team. But I want to say that there's two I's, E-Y-E-S, in team. But there's also a whole other amount of bodies, parts of the body, they're all needing to work together. Again, in 1 Corinthians 12, the ear doesn't say to the eye, I am not an eye and therefore I'm not part of the body. We are all needing to work together. It relies on the full body and a healthy body to reach the summit. And we can't rely on our new pastor on the horizon to solve all of our problems. We should be wanting our new pastor to rely on us, to help them with us as a team get up to the summit, reach the summit, a healthy body of Christ. Otherwise, it can end up looking like this. 2019, this is what goes wrong when you have a bunch of people who aren't working together, 300 individual climbers all trying to reach the top of that famous Everest. You don't have to be a mountaineer to see that that's probably a pretty dangerous situation and not really the most effective way. People getting held up, people stopping each other, people getting in each other's way. This picture went viral because people could see that this is not how someone gets up Everest. This is problematic. This is an issue. It kind of instills some fear and anxiety in you when you see a bunch of eyes all trying to get up the mountain by themselves and no hands and feet helping them along the way. The second principle that I want to look at is rejoice in the struggle. 
you know, as Hillary and Norgay were trekking up this mountain, Mount Everest, at 21,000 feet, they came across a tent. This tent had been abandoned. It was weather-beaten and torn and ripped, and they dared to open up the flap and look inside. And inside was a frozen corpse, frozen in a moment of desperately trying to get his boot on, his last living moments, as Everest claimed another life. 300 people have died trying to climb Everest. And these aren't unfit people. These are professional mountaineers. There's still 120 bodies that still remain up on that mountain today, much like that one in that tent, reminding people as they take that trek up how dangerous it can be. But Hillary and Norgay didn't let that get in their way. They didn't let that stop their journey up. You know, by this point in a mountain, they were only three quarters up. They still had another 7,000 feet to go. Air pressure at that point is getting so thin. At, at, at sea level, 21% oxygen. By the time you're about 21,000 feet, you're looking at 8% oxygen. Another mountaineer has compared climbing Everest at that altitude to sprinting on a treadmill while trying to suck air through a straw. How easy would it have been for them to give up? Nehemiah 12, 31 and 37 to 38 reads Nehemiah's writing. I had the leaders of Judah go up on top of the wall. I also assigned two large choirs to give thanks. One was to proceed on top of the wall to the right toward the dung gate. At the fountain gate, they continued directly up the steps of the city of David on the ascent to the wall and passed above the site of David's palace to the water gate on the east. The second choir proceeded in the opposite direction. I followed them on top of the wall together with half the people past the tower of the ovens to the broad wall. You know, here we've got, again, a very small amount of people, Ezra, Nehemiah and the leaders getting up on that wall and dedicating it, celebrating. And they go two ways around and meet back around in the middle. One goes towards the Tower of Ovens. Have you ever smelt fresh baked bread before? How good does that smell? Can you imagine how nice that would have smelt walking towards the Tower of Ovens? And then on the other side, poor Ezra's side, they're walking towards the Dung Gate. You know, sometimes when we're trying to reach the summit, when we're trying to build God's kingdom, it can kind of feel like we have to get through a dung gate. We have to walk through something. We have to trek through something, push through something. And what did Ezra and those leaders do? Did they complain? Did they go back? Did they give up? No, they rejoiced. They were celebrating. There were symbols and lyres and choirs and they were celebrating because they were filled with the joy of the Lord. Romans 5, 3 to 5 says, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at Nehemiah 8, and that beautiful verse, 8.10, The joy of the Lord is our strength. Rejoicing in the suffering. 
And the final principle that I want to look at today is renewing of your spirit. You know, as I mentioned, as, as Hillary and Tenzing were a team of 400 people bringing up supplies, they had people bringing up tanks of oxygen for them. Because when you're getting high up to that altitude, the oxygen is so low that you need another supply. And I kind of love this, this, this imagery, this analogy of when you're trying to achieve something great, you need to constantly be refilled. For them, it was oxygen. For us, it's the Holy Spirit. Because it's only when we have the power of God in us that we can fully achieve everything that he's planned out for us. If you can achieve your goals without God, we're not dreaming big enough. Renewing our spirit daily through prayer, reading the word, worshipping, fasting. That's how we'll have the power to reach the summit. In Nehemiah 12, 30 to 31, it reads, When the priests and Levites had purified themselves ceremonially, they purified the people, the gates, and the wall. They understood that before that they could pour out Holy Spirit and purify anything else, they needed to be in a right place with themselves. They needed to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The best thing that we can do for somebody else's faith is to be in an intimate relationship with God ourselves. The best thing you can do for that person you know who doesn't know God, the best thing you can do for them is be a model of what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit, being intimate with God daily, knowing the Word. Jesus constantly headed out into the wilderness in the Gospels. We see it time and time again. He leaves his disciples, goes out into the wilderness, connects with his Father, and is refilled with the Spirit, renewing his Spirit. Titus 3.5 reads, He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. I want to finish off by reading a verse in Hebrews 12. And I love this little section because in my Bible, it, the subheading reads, the mountain of fear and the mountain of joy. Paul's talking about these two mountains that we have to climb. And he contrasts them so clearly for us. He starts off with talking about the mountain of fear. He says, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal had touched this mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But no, we climb a mountain of joy. You have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the, med the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. God is calling us, church. He's calling us to reach the summit, to rebuild, to see his kingdom come, to bless Jural, 
So three principles. Reliable team. We need to not only rely on others and work as a team, but we need to be reliable ourselves, each part of the body working together. We need to rejoice in the struggle. It's not always going to be easy, but principle number three, by a renewal of our spirits, who can stand against us? Let me pray for us. God, thank you for this story that we read in Nehemiah that has so much depth, so much knowledge, so much wisdom of how you work, of how you use us to build a kingdom that glorifies you, that honors you, that spreads out its arms to the surrounding nations. God, I pray that you would use us, not as an I, but as a we, that each of us would know what our calling is as part of a greater church to serve, to build, to honor, to bring the name of Jesus above all other names. God, help us. Give us the spiritual discipline to daily be filling ourselves with the word, with your spirit. And God, we give the center over to you. May it be a lamp on a hill that is honoring of you that shares the light with the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.